You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Job chapter 34 and 35. There are 40 chapters in Job, so we're getting there. For those of you who've had enough, um, like Job, but... Uh, I'm going to look at 34 and 35, a just and detached God. Let's read chapter 34 first of all. Then Elihu said, hear my words, you wise men, listen to me, you men of learning, for the ear tests words as the tongue tastes food. Let us discern for ourselves what is right. Let us learn together what is good. Job says, I am innocent, but God denies me justice. Although I am right, I am considered a liar. Although I am guiltless, his arrow inflicts an incurable wound. What man is like Job, who drinks scorn like water? He keeps company with evildoers. He associates with wicked men. For he says, it profits a man nothing when he tries to please God. So listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. He repays a man for what he has done. He brings upon him what his conduct deserves. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Who appointed him over the earth? Who put him in charge of the whole world? If it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all mankind would perish together and man would return to the dust. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Can he who hates justice govern? Will you condemn the just and mighty one? Is he not the one who says to kings, you are worthless, and to nobles, you are wicked, who shows no partiality to princes and does not favor the rich over the poor, for they are all the work of his hands? They die in an instance, in the middle of the night. The people are shaken and they pass away. The mighty are removed without human hand. His eyes are on the ways of men. He sees their every step. There is no dark place, no deep shadow where evildoers can hide. God has no need to examine men further that they should come before him for judgment. Without inquiry, he shatters the mighty and sets up others in their place. Because he takes note of their deeds, he overthrows them in the night and they are crushed. He punishes them for their wickedness where everyone can see them because they turn from following him and had no regard for any of his ways." They caused the cry of the poor to come before him, so that he heard the cry of the needy. But if he remains silent, who can condemn him? If he hides his face, who can see him? Yet he is over man and nation alike, to keep a godless man from ruling, from laying snares for the people. Suppose a man says to God, I am guilty, but will offend no more. Teach me what I cannot see. If I've done wrong, I will not do so again. Should God then reward you on your terms when you refuse to repent? You must decide, not I. So tell me what you know. Men of understanding declare, wise men who hear me say to me, Job speaks without knowledge, his words lack insight. Oh, that Job might be tested to the utmost for answering like a wicked man. To his sin he adds rebellion. Scornfully he claps his hands amongst us and multiplies his words against God. Well... So much in that is true, and yet it is a horrific chapter. 
and it's horrific because of the harm that it does to Job. But I want to take it in a broader context. I want to think in terms of our culture and to think about equality. All of us, we live in a culture where everything, you know, it's equality, equality and diversity. Everything has got to be equal. And and it's something that's deeply ingrained. It's something that, that children have from the very beginning. A children will have a, sen- a child of a, uh, a sense of fairness and justice. We'll say that's not fair. But what do we mean when we say that's not fair? Let me tell you this. It means that it's not fair that we don't get what we deserve. The trouble is we all have different ideas what we deserve. I think it's unfair that I am not paid the same as Wayne Rooney. Because I do something that's far more valuable than Wayne Rooney does. And I'm far more skillful than Wayne Rooney. But I think it's not fair. Uh, And if any of you don't know who Wayne Rooney is, uh, welcome to the mad world of Britain. Uh, I'll tell you another time. But it's unfair. There are lots and lots of things that's unfair. Uh, I think it's unfair that, um, you know, Miley Cyrus actually sells records when there are lots of people who make much better music who, uh, it's unfair. We, we, we all have different ideas of what is fair and what is not fair. So what's this idea of fairness and justice? Where do we get it from? What does it mean? Well, I went through a whole load of dictionaries and came up with some of these. The quality of being just, fairness, the principle of moral rightness, equity, conformity to moral rightness in action or attitude, righteousness, The upholding of what is just, especially fair treatment and due reward in accordance with honor, standards, or law. The administration and procedure of law. Conformity to truth, fact, or sound reason. And, for example, to do justice to, to treat adequately, fairly, or with full appreciation. Who doesn't want that? Righteousness, being treated in accordance with the law. We want the law to be fair and honest and just and administered administered fairly and honestly and justly. Now, here's your problem. And it is your problem if you are not a Christian. If you're an atheist, where does your fairness come from? You have an enormous problem because what do you say? You say, well, it comes from the rules that society makes. So society decides all redheads should be discriminated against. Sorry, redheads. Uh, you know, all redheads should be wiped out. If society is, is that fair? No, you say that's not fair. So, if it's not society, who is it then? Is it you? But what if someone's stronger than you? How do you have any concept or idea of fairness and justice if there is no God, if there is no absolute truth and no absolute rightness and no absolute law, but human beings just make it up as we go along because we just happen to be a collection of chemicals who've got together and involved in a particular way? Where do you get that idea of fairness from? And in actual fact, many people in our culture get to the point where they just simply say, there is no justice, there is no fairness. Get what you can, enjoy what you can, just make things up as you go along. I think, though, what would almost be worse is what some Christians think, or some people who profess to be religious think. Let me put it this way. What if there was a God and he was unjust and he was unfair? What if he was capricious? So some people, for example, will read stories, particularly in the Old Testament, of the slaying of the Amalekites and go, that's not fair. Now, it's really interesting for me if an atheist says that, because I'm saying, how do you know what fair is? 
for just chemicals, they're just getting rid of some chemicals. But from a Christian perspective, you look and say, no, that's not fair. And then you have to look and say, well, wait a minute. How, how is that not fair? And that particular problem in the Old Testament is one that, that we wrestle with precisely because we believe in a just and fair God. But never mind with that. There are other people who look and who say, it's not fair. What's happened to me in my life? I've, I've sought to live a good life. I haven't gone to jail. I haven't taken drugs. I haven't committed adultery. I've, I've tried to live as good a life as possible. Yet I'm struggling with... I'm very lonely. I'm struggling with not enough money. I'm struggling with illness. And I know people who've been dishonest. I know people who've cheated and who've lied and who've stolen. And they're prospering. That's not fair. Why is God allowing this? And so something comes into us that makes us one of the oldest temptations. In fact, probably the oldest temptation for human beings is this, is to believe that God is not fair. Wasn't that what the devil said to Eve? Did God really say you shouldn't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Did God really say that? What's he saying? He's saying, that's not fair. God's not fair. God's trying to keep you from something that you deserve, that you should have. And I need to say to those of you who are Christians, that that temptation keeps being repeated insidiously in so many different ways. You and I are not in a position to act as the judge of God and say, well, that's not fair. So I think what we're dealing with today is hugely important to us. Now, what Elihu does is he's addressing Job's friends, he's addressing the wise men, he's quoting from Job's earlier speeches, and he's saying, that because God is just, then any criticism of God is always unjust and wrong. And everyone else, of course, agrees with that. that, that this is, in Christian terms, what you'd call a truism. He's still a little bit arrogant. You'll notice at the beginning, he compares his own words to those of a gourmet chef. He's basically saying, you guys gave him McDonald's. I'm giving him MasterChef winner, you know, in, in the words that he is using. And he says, God can't do wrong. God is righteous and mighty. He doesn't show favoritism. If that wasn't true, then we would live in hell. Abraham, arguing with God about Sodom and Gomorrah, says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Far be it from you to do wrong. In the chapter we have before us, Elihu describes God as the just rewarder, verse 11, the sovereign king, verse 13, the sustainer of life, verses 14 and 15, the impartial ruler, verses 16 onwards, the omniscient judge, verses 21 to 25, the absolute executor, verses 25 to 30. Now, everything that Elihu says about God is true, but it's how he applies it that's wrong because he sees the justice of God as mainly punitive, as though God's justice is just about punishing people. But actually, the justice of God is the absolute standard of fairness and justice, and the justice of God is about God being fair and just. And I think a lot of Christians want to overlook that far too quickly. I had a meeting down the road a few years ago with an imam and beside him was a lecturer who was a white guy from Manchester and who had converted to Islam. And I asked him, what did you converted from? And he said, um, Catholicism. 
And I said, why did you convert? And he said, because Muslims believe in a just God, Christians don't. And it was a big deal for him. And I thought about it a lot. And, and I actually think there's an element of truth in that. We don't appreciate the justice and the goodness of God in being just. And if God is not just, then he's the devil. If God is not just, then we live in the blackest of black universes. So the justice of God is hugely significant and hugely important. But I think the accusation that Elihu makes against Job is wrong. Because Job acknowledges the justice of God. And yet, it's precisely because of that justice that Job can question. He can say, Lord, when I look upon what's happened... Given that you are just, given that you are fair, this doesn't look fair to me. Hear me. Elihu doesn't know the whole circumstances. He doesn't know about Satan coming to test Job. He exaggerates. Job has never, ever accused God of being a liar. Elihu really needs to learn when to stop talking and when to start listening. It's like this. It's as though you need fixed in your mind. You need certain boundaries that are fixed about God. One is God can't lie. The other is God cannot be unjust. The other is that God is love. These things cannot move. They cannot change. But there are circumstances in your life which do not seem to fit within that framework. And sometimes, instead of trying to work it all out, sometimes you just have to let things go. There's a wonderful scene in Michael Moore's film, Bowling for Columbine, Remember the, the Columbine School Massacre, where the wisest words in the whole film come from a very unlikely source, Marilyn Manson. And again, those of you who don't know Marilyn Manson, you probably don't want to know, but he's a very, he's a very intelligent guy. Um, in fact, the, the hot chocolate thing that Andy's talking about, uh, initially when that work began, it was because of the goths and the, uh, hanging around the city square and all dressing like Marilyn Manson. A bit scary, you know, with the black eyeliner and... and uh, you know, the long black trench coats and the nose studs and all that kind of stuff. People went, oh, no, 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 no. And uh, they were imitating Marilyn Manson. One of the things that people got wrong about that is these young people are idiots. No. Marilyn Manson actually is a remarkably intelligent person. A lot of stuff that you would look at and you'd go, oh, no, what are you doing? But he's a very thoughtful person. And he was asked by Michael Moore, what would you say to the children of Columbine? Now, the reason he was asked, because... There were people who were alleging that the guys who committed the massacre were copying Marilyn Manson. They were dressing like Marilyn Manson and copying him. And Moore shows pretty clearly how ludicrous that was. But he asked Manson, what would you say to the children at Columbine? And Manson said this, nothing. I would listen to what they have to say. Now that's wisdom, actually. I would say nothing. What can I say? Elihu would have done better to listen to what Job was saying. So we have there that first thing there, then, that, that God is just. That is hugely, hugely significant and hugely uh, vital in how we understand things. And at a practical level, when you are feeling hard done by, it's not wrong for you to question why you're in particular circumstances. But what you mustn't do is question on the basis of thinking that you are just and that God is unjust. That's not how it works. God is just. And if you have a problem, as I do, and many of us will, with fitting in some of the circumstances, some of the things we see in this world with the justice of God, then welcome to the the reality 
of the Bible and the reality of this world. But never ever let go of the justice of God as being a foundational thing for your thinking. Now we'll go on to look at the second part of that, but let's sing Psalm uh, 77. Uh, We're going to sing verses 1 to 9. I cried aloud to God for help. I prayed that God would hear. When I was plunged in deep distress, I sought the Lord in prayer. We seek God when we're in despair precisely because he is just and he is fair. So if you've got the idea, you know that God is just, that God cannot do anything wrong, that it is is impossible for God to do anything wrong, and then you've got things that you see or things in your life which you can't immediately connect to that, how do you survive? How do you cope? Well, we go on to read in chapter 35. Then Elihu said, do you think this is just? You say I will be cleared by God. Yet you ask him, what profit is it to me? And what do I gain by not sinning? I would like to reply to you and to your friends with you. Look up at the heavens and see. Gaze at the clouds so high above you. If you sin, how does that affect him? If your sins are many, what does that do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects only a man like yourself and your righteousness only the sons of men. Men cry out under a load of oppression. They plead for relief from the arm of the powerful. But no one says, where is God my maker? Who gives songs in the night? Who teaches more to us than to the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the air? He does not answer when men cry out because of the arrogance of the wicked. Indeed, God does not listen to their empty plea. The Almighty pays no attention to it. How much less then will he listen when you say that you do not see him, that your case is before him and you must wait for him, and further, that his anger never punishes and he does not take the least notice of wickedness. So Job opens his mouth with empty talk. Without knowledge, he multiplies words. Now actually, Elihu's theology here is a great example of why what you think about God is hugely important and hugely practical, because his theology is off. It's slightly off, but it leads up to drastic consequences. He's saying that God is answerable to no one and certainly not to Job. But is that true? Is it not in fact dangerous? Do you not in fact create a capricious God? I don't believe in a God who can promise one thing and give another. I don't believe in a God who will tell lies. I don't believe in a God who is unjust. And... Because I believe in the Christian God, I don't believe in a God who is not love. God has made us in his image, and we have the right to ask about justice and to expect that he will act justly. Elihu says that since God is so great, why should it bother God what happens on earth? Why do a human being's virtues or his sins affect God? They just affect the man himself. That's what he's saying. God is great and beyond our understanding, he says, and does not care for human beings. He's saying that God's actions and justice are self-determined and not man-centered. He's saying that God is not under man's control. But you see, he goes too far. He's implying that God does not care. He's saying, why are you complaining so that that you do not see him? Why should he listen to you? Why do you say he does not notice wickedness? 
And I think he's also wrong about sin. Why does my sin deserve to be punished? Because it's a sin against God. It does affect God. God is not cold and detached. There is a coldness in Elihu's speech. And I think it's a coldness that reflects his view of God. Is it possible? Now, there's an argument about this, and it's a philosophical argument, and if you want to get into it, then talk to Will. Because um, uh, it's, can God have passions? Now, our confession of faith says he doesn't have passions. Not in the sense that we have passions, but can God have feelings? And there's an argument that goes that feelings cause you to change, therefore, and God cannot change, therefore God does not have feelings. And I think that what you end up doing there is being so logical, you end up going against Scripture. Genesis 6, 6, the Lord was grieved that he'd made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. How do you explain that if God does not feel his heart was filled with pain? Do you say, oh, it's just an anthropomorphism, it's just like speaking about God's hand and so on? Yeah, but for what? For what? What's it trying to say? It's saying that God was grieved. Surely a better approach is that of Isaiah 40, verse 31. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The biblical idea is that a great view of God does not lead to fatalism, detachment, and despair, but rather to trust. Now, this is the way that I love this story. I want to read this story in full. I've mentioned it before, but um, it's a story about Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt used to have a little, rich, uh, a little ritual with the naturalist William Beebe. After an evening's chat, the two men would go outside and look into the night sky. Gazing into the stars, they would find the lower left-hand corner of the great square of Pegasus. One of them would recite these words as part of their ritual. That is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of a hundred million galaxies. It is 750,000 light years away. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our own sun. They would then pause, and Roosevelt would finally say, Now I think we feel small enough. Let's go to bed. See, if you believe the Bible, you're saying, God created all of that, created a vastness which we can't even comprehend. How, how do you get 750,000 light years away? I think London's a long way away. But 750,000 light years away, 100 billion suns. It's extraordinary. What do you and I matter when we're on this, as Carl Sagan says, this pale blue dot, this tiny planet in this small galaxy? What does it matter? What do we matter? How do we know that we matter? Well, we know because the God who created it all came and put on human flesh and came to us. I think this is one of the fundamental differences between Christianity and Islam. Islam does believe in a God of justice, but not a God of love. There are 99 names for Allah in the Quran. Not one of them is love. And that's a huge, huge thing. God is not an impersonal administrator of justice. And for me, that is just unbelievable. I mean, you're trying to 
to understand the love of God and the depth of God. And we've just turned that into such a trite cliche that it's the equivalent to, you know, the taste of Maltesers or something. I love that. I love that. I love that. And yet we need to start thinking of of it in terms of the greatness of what he has created. And this God actually loves and cares. Elihu tries to answer Job's question of why does God not answer my prayer? Psalm 66 verse 18 said, if I cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Elihu says of Job, you've been doing that and also you've not really been addressing your God. Um, if, if you were, why, why has God not answered your prayers? Because you didn't have enough faith. It's because you had the wrong motive. It's because you have hidden unconfessed sin. But here's a problem if you start thinking about prayer. Why has God not answered my prayer about this and about that and about the other thing? There are things that I've been praying for, things that I've been really concerned about, and not trivial things, really important things. A friend who's dying. A friend who's a family member who's not yet a Christian. The constant pain that I feel. Why has God not dealt with that? And there are Christian teachers who will come and will be incredibly cruel and will tell you like Eli, you, you don't have enough faith. If only you have enough faith, you will get it. Or if only your motive is perfect. God is not answering your prayer because you've not been praying properly. Well, if it was true that we had to be perfect to pray and pray properly, then I would never pray. It would be an absolute waste of time. 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 12 verse 8, Paul says this, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Thomas Watson says, What is it to pray in faith? It is to pray for that which God has promised. Where there is no promise, we cannot pray in faith. It is God who knows what is good. Now, please be careful. Some of you I know have grown up with a theology or become Christians, and you've been given a theology, which, to be honest, is so much part of your, 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 the fabric of your faith that to dismantle it seems like dismantling your whole faith. But it needs to be dismantled. It needs to be blown apart. You do not claim things in faith from God that God has not promised. You do not. You do not go to God and say, I'm claiming this healing. I'm claiming this salvation. I am claiming this. I'm claiming this money. You can go and you can ask. But God doesn't give you something because you claim it. It doesn't exist because you claim it. Does that mean we don't pray for things? Of course not. But praying in faith It's not praying in faith that you will get everything that you ask for. It's praying in faith that God will answer you according to his riches in mercy, not your thoughts. Be very careful about believing things that are not promised, because if you do, then the things that are promised, you will end up disbelieving because you think God has told you a lie. God said to you, you were going to marry that person. It didn't happen. Oh, well, God was lying. So Jesus, God lied about Jesus. God lied about forgiving sin. God cannot lie. He's not unjust. Now, some people think that that is not to have faith. Some people think that that is decrying belief in miracles and so on. No, it's not. I believe that God can provide all that I need. It doesn't mean that I'm going to go to bed tonight and say, Lord, I claim 250 pounds because I need that tomorrow. 
Why 250? Why not quarter of a million? Oh yeah, yeah, I, I claim quarter of a million. I'm sorry, if you live like that, you're going to go insane. And it's not what the Bible teaches. If you're not a Christian and you think, if I become a Christian, then what will happen is, uh, you know, I'll be able to get lots of stuff. God will answer all my prayers. No, he won't. Not the way that you are thinking. See, that's the difference between Christianity and the capricious gods of Hinduism. If you do this, they might give you this. If you sacrifice this, they might give you that. No, no, that's, that's not reality. I think Elihu believes in a controllable and manageable God. And I think people who are claiming great faith actually believe that they can control and manage God. If I just have enough faith, then God will have to do what I say. No, he doesn't. That's not how it works. Elihu, who thinks he is perfect in knowledge, has a manageable, predictable God. Job is all too conscious of the sovereign freedom of the Lord. He lives in the suspense of faith, praying without guarantees. Now, I think we pray with guarantees about the character of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, the promises of God contained in his word. Yes, but I don't think that we can dare pray as a means of manipulating God to do our will. We pray, your will be done, not mine. So God does answer our prayers. And here's the great thing about being a Christian. Every prayer is answered. And every prayer is answered yes in Christ Jesus. Even when the thing that you are asking for, you don't get. Because as part of the grand scheme of God and the justice and the goodness and the love and the mercy of God, it works out. Now, here's why. God so loved the world He gave his one and only Son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's why I'm not a Muslim, because Muslims will say they believe in a just God, but not a God who saves, not a God who gives his Son, because he doesn't have a Son to give, not a God who loves, because the Muslim God is detached, completely detached. That's why I'm a Christian, not an atheist, because being an atheist just doesn't make any sense intellectually. That's why I'm a Christian and not a Hindu, because I don't want to believe in the capricious gods of Hinduism. That's why I'm a Christian and not a Buddhist, because I don't want to save myself into a a nirvana, a nothingness. It's not I'm a Christian because I'm more arrogant or because I think that, that Jesus Christ is a Western God. Not at all. It's because there is a God who created the whole universe, a God who is absolutely just, a God who allowed human beings to have relationships, which mean that we have to have choice, which means that we could choose good or evil, and when we chose evil, he could have wiped us all out. It grieved his heart, but he sent his son to die for us so that God could still be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. There's, we, we sing sometimes, how great is our God, and, and do you understand and do you grasp how great is our God? What he has done, which is absolutely so extraordinary. What does it mean? It means if you're not a Christian, 
You need to come to him. You need to say, Lord God, please forgive my sin. You gave your son. I ask you to come into my life. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to give me your Holy Spirit. And when you're praying that, how do you know that's answered? Well, it's very simple. How do we know what God wants? What he's promised in his word. And it says in his word that if we ask for the Holy Spirit, we receive. If we come to Jesus in faith, we're forgiven. And maybe some of us are are, are Christians and we are wrestling and struggling with discouragement and depression and illness and pain and sorrow. And like Paul, we are pleading with the Lord, take this from me, take this from me, take this from me. Or we're asking him to give us something. Give me this, give me this, give me this. And we think our life will be incomplete without it. You can pray in absolute faith that the God of all the earth, of all the universe, is just and fair and right. And even though he slays you, yet you will trust him. I think it is, for me, it is just absolutely extraordinary. I don't want the cold, detached theology of Elihu, accurate though it is in 90% of of its statements, It's the other 10% that matters just as much. Get your theology right, and it leads you to a God of whose very being is love, and to even begin to know. I mean, imagine you could do this light year thing and, and travel to Andromeda. How incredibly amazing that would be, but not nearly so amazing as beginning to grasp the height, the depth, the wonder of the love of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.